The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the future of movies. Amanda, we have to start the show with some breaking news this morning. It's Monday, and we just learned that ABC has notified the world that they will not be airing the Golden Globes in 2022. The network said this on a state, in a statement Monday morning. And the reasons for this are, are obvious. We've been talking about the problems of the Golden Globes for a number of months here in part, the uh, scope of their membership, how they decide what films should be nominated, some of the conduct of some of their members over the years. What's your reaction to this news that NBC is holding the Globes? I am a little bit surprised, even though, you know, over the weekend, uh, individual celebrities and s- studios have been kind of coming out against the Golden Globes and specifically the Hollywood Foreign Press Association saying they would no longer participate until there was like meaningful reform. And it did seem like... Um, this was the year that people were finally taking a lot of longstanding allegations against the Hollywood Foreign Press Association seriously. Um, but I don't think that I expected NBC to just to walk away as quickly. And we should say that at the time of recording, what we know is that according to their statement, they will not be airing the 2022 Golden Globes. And this is from the statement. Assuming the organization executes on its plan, we are hopeful we'll be, we will be in a position to air the show in January, 2023. So it seems like they have not yet completely torn up the contract. And basically we just don't, we don't know totally what this means beyond this statement. Yeah. The HFPA has made a commitment over an 18 month period to redefine its membership, to reimagine the way that they are organized and the way that they reward certain films and certain television shows. Most of the studios have replied that this is simply not enough and not fast enough. Um, some of the biggest studios and streamers have issued statements. Warner Media, most recently, also Amazon and Netflix and many others have come out and said that the HFPA needs to do better if it wants to continue to have its have these studios participate in its award season, among other things. This is an interesting thing. I mean, the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Golden Globes, we've talked about this. We've been making fun of this organization for years. I mean, it has been a kind of self-dealing joke, a kind of well-known clown show for a long time. And obviously, some of the problems that have been taking place are quite nefarious and unfortunate and morally complex. And some of them are just kind of your typical run-of-the-mill kind of self-dealing garbage. And so there is, I guess, some nuance ultimately to this conversation about what are the things that need to be fixed immediately that will be, and how will we recognize 
whether things are properly fixed, who is vetting these things. It's a little bit hard to say. I'm always a little bit skeptical when it seems like it's curtains for uh, such a longstanding institution that most people will not have a ton of awareness of this story. They'll just watch the Globes the next time they see them on TV. There are very few shows now that can still draw 10 million viewers. And so it still has a kind of power in that respect. On the other hand, these have been pretty forceful statements that have been issued. And the reporting is is deep on the problems within this organization. So I, I guess I'm a little bit unsure of how, how to respond here, how seriously to take some of this stuff. I'm curious how much of it is also... Uh, I'm curious how much will stick. And I do wonder, I mean, as you said, we have been talking about the problems with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for years and not just, you know, the the gift bags, but allegations of sexual assault and racism and, you know, terrible things that have been in public. And for some reason, this seems to be the year where it's all sticking. So on the other hand, this is also the year where the Golden Globes had their lowest ratings ever. And obviously that was because of a pandemic. And as you said, there are not many television shows that can get 10 million viewers, but 10 million viewers is probably not what NBC had in mind when they signed the multi-year deal that uh, pays, in which they reportedly pay the Hollywood Foreign Press Association $60 million a year for $10 million for 10 million viewers. And I am wondering whether there's some accounting going on at NBC and whether they're like, okay, maybe this is just not how we want to spend this money going forward. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think that you or I want the Hollywood foreign press association around anymore. So if that's what it takes, I'm okay with it, but I would agree with you that there are questions and how it's all going to pan out and what the motivations are, are not clear at this particular moment. Yeah, like every other corporately managed body, these groups are going through a major reckoning. The Academy has been going through a major reckoning for the last six or seven years. The HFPA is going through an even more tumultuous reckoning. And I don't know. It seems we won't see the show next year. I personally won't miss it all that much. I do think that something can potentially rise in its place. Maybe we can talk about what that will be in the future. In the meantime, we'll cover this story as it continues to develop on the show. But let's go to something a little bit lighter. Let's bring in our guest. Let's welcome the great Sam Esmail. Back on the show for the first time since I believe he was our last guest before quarantine hit. It's the creator of Mr. Robot, among many other things. It's the great Sam Esmail. Sam, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? I missed you guys. We, we missed, missed you, you. too. Uh, Sam, I was thinking back on the last time we saw you in person, and um, the world was different then. And it was like about a couple weeks before the world went to shit, right? I want to say it was like the end of February, right, of last year. I wow. would have said at least two years ago. That's like that's which which <laughs> that's honestly maybe at this point sure. was uh, you know right before quarantine. I don't know. It's it's become cliche to be like I've lost sense of time, but wow, it really does feel like a, a different a different life. We're, we're glad you're back here. Um, you are a, an avowed cinephile and uh, a person who thinks deeply about the stuff that we talk about on this show all the time. So we have a lot to talk about today. I thought we should start, especially since it's been such a complicated, trying, and weird year for movies, and it does seem like we are potentially on the precipice of coming out of the weirdness. So. Amanda and I screamed and yelled a lot about Which the future of movies, movie theaters. We lost our minds. We were confused, concerned. The HBO Max news hit last fall, and 
we had a proper meltdown about that. And you've been very vocal about HBO Max's decision to go day and date in theaters and at home on a streaming service. And I, I wanted to give you a forum to kind of talk through this because it seems like you may have been right, but I want to hear your your pitch in full on this. <laughs> I just I, I never I never think limiting options to people is a good thing. I don't understand. I, I just don't even understand how uh, uh, even business wise that makes sense because the people that are going to want to see it in the movie theaters, like myself, like like the two of you, you're going to go fucking see it in the movie theaters. I don't care if it's on HBO Max. Like, I assume you will still go to the theaters regardless. I mean, you've done it already, right? Not um, yet. You've no, seen not Netflix yet. movies. No, 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 no. I'm not even, I'm saying pre-pandemic. Oh, yes, there, ne- yes. there were Netflix movies where you went to the theaters to see the movie. And, you know, I've, I've, um, I've listened to interviews with filmmakers who went and saw The Irishman in the theater. I saw The Irishman in the theater. So that's not going to change. So the idea that somehow one cannibalizes the other is ridiculous. And the fact that we're going to hold off on films where may, there are going to be some locations around the world and even in this country where people don't have access to theaters and specifically smaller films that are going to be maybe playing smaller outhouse theaters. And the fact that they have to wait in this ridiculous, I, I never liked it, even as a kid. I mean, do you remember back in the day, the theatrical window was some ridiculous two-year two year window from theater. And that was just because they kept re-releasing it in theaters. That is just a punitive thing by the theater business to for, force this monopoly on you. It's not as if they're offering some compelling argument for you to come in and spend their money other than we have it and you can't have it. And that, I just, I just on principle, hate that. But look at what, look at what happened with, and everyone like got angry at HBO Max and Warner Brothers for doing what they're doing right now, the day and date releases. But look at Godzilla. That made a good, I mean, who would have thought that that was the movie that was going to save us from the pandemic or save movie <laughs> theaters from the pandemic. But that made a lot of money in the theaters and it was, free on or else not free but on your hbo max subscription so i think it just sort of proves the point but weirdly it's not really making any changes i feel like the theatrical windows are now creeping back in again i mean i think they're smaller right i think they're playing around with a 45 day model or something like that i just i don't get it it's so silly to me i find i find it very trivial and silly i find like i think if a moviegoer wants to see a movie, they should have every opportunity to see it and, and pay. I mean, I think a lot of people would pay. I mean, I rented, I don't know about you guys, but I rented a lot of movies. I paid the 20 bucks or whatever. Um, you know, I, 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 just, I just think they're A, leaving money on the table, and B, I just think in general for moviegoers, it's, a better, it's just a better business model to have as many access channels as possible to, to the movies they want to see. Do you think it limits? I, I'm I'm asking this for both of you guys because do you think it limits the uh, the kind of movie that can be successful in a theatrical experience? Because for example, there is another new release coming on HBO Max this week. I don't. Can you can you name what the new release is, Sam? Do you know what's coming this, out on is Friday? This, is this? I don't know the title because it's super long, but it's the Angelina Jolie movie. Yes, yes. Those who wish me yeah. did. Um, yes. It's I don't funny, think, Sam. I couldn't remember the title either, but I do. Angelina Jolie, <laughs> Taylor Sheridan. Yeah. I don't do love you, sentence titles, you know, titles that are sentences, but anyway, that's another pod. Do I know to hold Sean. that against you in the future? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm asking that because I am curious if 
anybody besides the three of us nerds know about that movie. It does not seem like there's a ton of awareness. And so that movie also will go into theaters and also hit HBO Max simultaneously. It feels like the kind of movie that most people would say, I actually don't have to leave my house for this. I'm going to watch it at home. Now that gives people what they want, which you identified, Sam. But as far as the theatrical experience goes, I don't think people are really going to show up for that movie. And they're not, well, they've not been incentivized to show up. Well, let's talk about that. You know, and then I think this is actually a bigger conversation about movie making in general. But I think when people, and this is just my opinion, from for anecdotally from people who I speak to that are not in the industry, that every once in a while I go to the movies, I ask what what makes you want to go see X, Y, and Z, and the common sort of you know I'm paraphrasing, but the refrain seems to be, I want to get the most bang for my buck. And to me, that means I want to see expensive shit on the screen. (laughs) And that's not a character drama, right? Even though that might be a better movie, it's not as expensive, right? I And I think that usually translates to a lot of CGI, a lot of action set pieces. And if it's not any of that, then why am I going to spend so much money to go see it? I I think there's this weird unconscious mentality about that. Because back in, I mean, we talked a little bit, I mean, I won't go down the 70s uh, uh, road right just a second, but if back then, it's it, The Godfather was the number one movie of the year when it won. I cannot imagine a three-hour drama, even if it was about the mob, being the number one movie at the box office of the year. That just doesn't exist anymore. And so I think the argument now to get people into the, it seems to me it has to be this sort of special effects extravaganza because that feels more expensive. And so I think, you know, I think you're right. Unfortunately, I do think char- like more character pieces or even Angelina, the Angelina Jolie film does look like it has a lot of action in it. It does but have it's not, scale, yeah. It does have scale, but I don't think to the level of Avengers. And I really think it needs to be that or Godzilla. And we saw the success of Godzilla. I think, I, I think there's like that equation right now in everyone's head, that it has to satisfy that for me to sit in the seat. Um, they're not going to see a documentary. That's for sure. I mean, that's just it feels cheap. doesn't feel like I'm getting the most bang for my buck. That's my theory. I don't know. You guys agree, disagree? I, no, I agree with you. And I, I have a follow-up question for you, Sam, like, as a movie lover. That's all, romantic comedies died, by the way, because right, of that. I right, think. but anyway, so this is, yeah. And, and I, comedies. Totally. And in some ways, the romantic comedy is a great example, right? Because number one, it's my interest set. But also number two, it has supposedly had like a quote renaissance on streaming, right? And it was a type of movie that they couldn't justify financially making at the box office. And then a smaller budget or a targeted audience on streaming, like you can... It's it's quote unquote back. I have to be honest with you, with the exception of a few romantic comedies, including last year, Palm Springs and Happiest Season, um, they all suck. They're they're like not good. And they are not the level of Nora Ephron uh, movies of yore. They're not even like the the weird Kate Hudson mid-2000s rom-coms of yore. And I have to tell you, those movies don't hold up. Um, but so that's what I wanted to ask you, Sam. Um, like as a filmmaker, as much of a moviegoer, what effect do you think this has on the movies that move to streaming? Because that is the consequence of, okay, we're only going to do blockbusters and big things like at the theater is that we have this opportunity, but 
how do you make smaller movies and are they different and are they different standards and you know, you're un- unfortunately, I'm giving you the answer that I think a lot of people uh, yes. say nowadays, which is it goes to TV. Yeah, right. So yes. the, 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 you know, the romantic comedies are turning into, you know, high, I mean, high fidelity was a s- series and one, one season series and delightful and, um, and normal people series, you know, those are the new, formats for these more character centric type of movies of yesteryear. Right. Um, and I don't, I, yeah, I don't know why the one-off features in the streamers, although to be fair, and I don't watch them, but aren't there like some hits on there? Like kissing booth. Isn't that a yeah, they're, romantic they're comedy that has like five sequels or something that that's a totally yes, they are hits. People watch them, and I do not want to be the person to denigrate making content for 17-year-olds in America. 17-year-olds in America have a really (laughs) hard time, especially 17-year-old girls are not being served by Hollywood, and it's great that they have something. But those movies are akin to what would be made on Lifetime, like Lifetime movies from 15 years ago in terms of quality, in terms of production, you know. Yes, you're right. Look, look, I'll admit ignorance here. I haven't watched a lot of the rom-coms that are on the streamers but i do but as as a filmmaker i'm saying i think a lot of the people that would have been the nora efrons Mm -hmm. are going into tv because totally so we can move it past rom-coms that was just you know an example where i where i know all the proper nouns but it's like so if if all of the things that we like that would have been you know adult character study dramas 20 years ago are now great TV shows that we also love, but they're TV shows on streaming. Then like, what happens to movies, Sam? Um, I mean, I'm sorry that I like drove I, us no, off the cliff I, so early. And it's like, I, I, no, it's a fair question. I mean, are you talking about the theater? Cause look, I think, I think you're always going to have, uh, yeah, I think Noah Baumbach is going to be making movies for Netflix or whomever, or whomever you want. And those Sam, are he's, based he's adapting white noise right now. God bless him. God bless him. Oh, white noise. Huh? Okay. Uh, that's a choice. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to watch Wait, it. Did you I'm just watch learn? It. Was that like your reaction to learning that Noah Bob? I did not know that. That I was really know. great. I kind of feel like we should just do a podcast where we tell everybody that Noah Bobak <laughs> is adapting white noise and just respond to their reaction. Mine was great. It was like 1030 at night and Sean and Chris <laughs> texted me to let me know. And I was like, what the hell? So yeah. <laughs> anyway, take as much time as you need, Sam. I mean, look, we talked about a little bit about this when we did the director game, right? I, I, I bemoaned the fact that there are a lot of talented films. I mean, look, Chloe Zhao, incredibly talented filmmaker. What is she doing? A Marvel Eternals. Yes. And then yes. Dracula? Yeah, I, I mean, and there are amazing filmmakers, young filmmakers that are coming up in the system and they're they're being shuffled into the superhero industri- industry complex. I don't I don't know I don't know what to say. I, I I do feel like you're either going to go down that road to be a successful movie filmmaker, putting aside TV for a second, but if you want to go down the more PTA road or even Tarantino road, those options seem to be uh, thinning out a lot, which is why I'm sort of embracing the, the sort of intersection of streaming and theatrical releases. I do mm-hmm. think that kind of will open up an opportunity 
for filmmakers who make their first indie. And I want to talk about, you know, to update our movie director game. I have some picks already for this decade that made some amazing directorial debuts this, this, uh, this past year that I hope they don't go down the road of making Star Wars sequels or Marvel sequels. I mean, maybe, you know, do a one-off, but like, look at Ryan Coogler, like Fruitvale, brilliant. And Creed, great. Black Panther, great. But now he's in Black Panther too. I just, I feel like I, what, what happened to those career paths that could have been, you know, if, if, if Coogler was born in the nineties or, or I'm sorry, not born in, but came, came into his own in the nineties, what, what kind of career would that have looked like? I don't think those opportunities are there right now. That, again, I, I circle back to, I think in a weird way, this whole theatrical window shrinking streaming thing might be a good thing because there might be more chances on interesting films rather than uh, just the, the sort of, um, uh, 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 assembly line. Let's like shuffle them into making uh, sequels or adaptations or what prequels or whatever. Let, let me ask you this. This is encroaching a little bit on Chris and Andy's territory, but you know, obviously, we've been talking about the superhero industrial complex. You know, consuming and subsuming a lot of talent over the last ten years. But frankly, the three biggest things in our culture over the last six months. Come say hi. The- em- Emmy wants to say hi. I'm on a podcast. Here. You're on a podcast? So, yeah, yeah. Like right can, now? Can, so can I just tell, can we do yeah. a side story for a second? Come here. Yeah, of course. So so I, I just want you, so, so we Hi. moved into our apartment and we, um, we have a movie theater now, first time ever mm-hmm. in our home, mm-hmm. like a real movie theater. Wow. So Dolby jealous. Dolby Atmos. Oh my god! Round sound, 4K, like like a real theatrical projector. And then I asked you, I was like, "You get to pick the first movie we're going to see in the theater." Mm-hmm. What was your pick? Notting Hill. Yes, <laughs> Emmy. Yes, I'm Amanda. By the way, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> and last brownie. <laughs> it's so wait, good. Wait, I've never seen it. No, I saw it, but I had the only. You seen remembered it, like, it being more Hollywood, right? And it was actually kind of more indie. Then I wrote. Yeah. yeah, like there's no big set piece or production no. number. Okay, so then the second night, again, we have a Dolby <laughs> Atmos, like beautiful. He's like, I'm do you want to see Star Wars or, or Lawrence of Arabia? What yeah. was your second? My movie? best friend's wedding. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> a great soundtrack. I had the CD. So I, you're making use of the sound. It's great. It's amazing. Oh, well, by the way, I love that movie. I know. Remember, I reunited. <laughs> really good. Okay, yes, you reunited Julian Dermott. It's all your fault. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Emmy. Thank you. All right, I had to do that. Quick. It's really quick good. At the Incredible Julia stuff. Roberts Film Festival. Really special. <laughs> Um, before that beautiful interlude, I was asking you a very serious question, <laughs> which is. Um, I feel like the biggest things in the culture, they used to be Julia Roberts movies that you and your, your partner can watch together. And now they are uh, The Mandalorian and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. And so now this stuff that we're talking about is in your airspace too. It's in TV and it feels like it's only going to be more in TV in the next 10 years. Does that concern you at all? I mean, in, on the one hand, it, it, it concerns me because I'm such a movie lover. But on the other hand, I've learned to really love TV in the last 20 years. I mean, don't you guys 
find like a lot of TV shows. I mean, I kind of think The Sopranos is the sort of godfather of today. Like that's a, an excellent television series that really, I think, can go head to head with The Godfather in a lot of ways, with the filmmaking and the writing and the performances. And I can do that across the line with The Wire and Breaking Bad. I don't want to bore you because we are on a, I don't want to get Chris and Andy too jealous, but um, <laughs> unfortunately, or, or fortunately, maybe this is just the way the business has evolved. I do think in a, in a weird way, movies are going to end up being, and I want to I clarify something because I did say it tends to be these superhero CGI movies. The other genre that weirdly does well theatrically, which I haven't really figured out, and Sean, I know, I know you're a big fan of the horror genre, but it does feel like that's the one exception to the rule. And that doesn't necessarily need to look expensive, but people will go to the theaters for it. And maybe that's because of the communal experience of, uh, you know, being, but, but I think comedies were a communal experience. Don't you love going to a great big comedy? Like, you know, there's something about Mary. I mean, I remember those screenings back in the day and just the whole screen or the whole theater just dying with laughter. I love that. And for whatever reason, that's just not the case anymore. I mean, comedies don't do well anymore. So I don't really get the horror exception. I'm glad it's there, but I don't. I have I have a theory for sure about both of those things, which is that comedy taste over the last 20 years has been completely atomized. And you can get your very own discrete, very specific version of what you find funny in a lot of places now on TV, on podcasts, throughout. You know, there, there are a lot of different ways to figure out what you think is funny and you don't need to do it with someone. Whereas with horror, horror is still kind of a homogenized, there's only like 10 ways to skin that cat. And so big franchises still work and also found footage, small budget movies still work. I'm pumped up about the new Conjuring movie in June. That's really soon. I would, I can't wait to see that movie in a movie theater. That's that movie is designed to be seen in a movie theater. So you're right. That's still going to work. I don't know, Amanda, any, any theories on why uh, comedy has vanished? One argument, and I don't even know whether I fully believe this, So, but I'm just going to say it for the sake of the podcast. But you you could say that comedy is an example where like TV or at-home watching or something other than like the, the studio movie in a theater ex- has experienced, like has improved the genre. Because we remember all the great studio comedies that work, but think about all the times you sat in a theater and you made it not even to like minute 60 of the comedy, but like minute 37 and you've gotten through the premise and they've used all the jokes and you're just like there for another like 60 to 90 minutes. Right. And you're just stuck there and they don't have it. And that's OK. Like we got used to that. And sometimes there is fun in like being in minute 100 of a comedy that's just like trying stuff and you don't know why you're here and you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner and like, you know, whatever. You don't have to be committed in the way that you say have to be committed to the Irishman for, you know, three hours. But like it didn't totally match the medium always. And when you're at home, you can watch a 30-minute version of it or a two-minute version of it. You can do your TikTok thing. As Sean said, you can watch a talk show, a podcast, read a thing. So I I do miss the communal aspect of it. But like in some ways, maybe we're getting better and at least more personalized, to Sean's point, comedy than we were 25 years ago. I will also add that you bring up a good point. When a comedy isn't good and you've spent however much money to go to that theater and see that comedy, I mean, that yeah. really sucks, right? Sucks. It's a bummer. Totally. Yeah. I think when people go to an action movie and it sucks, 
at least they got to see some cool action, some cool CGI thing. And maybe that goes for horror too. Yeah, I've seen some horror. Look, I watch a lot of horror movies. A lot of them are bad. But I get some scares and some creepy shit happening that I enjoy. And so I, that's the takeaway. Maybe with rom-coms and, and, and comedies in general, there is no takeaway if it's bad. It's just as bad. And you just want to leave. It's not funny. It's awkward. You're right. I hit that 60-minute mark. And I'm like, I don't, am I going to do this for another 60 minutes? I mean, they're just like really missing all the jokes. And, and, and weirdly, like, that's where we can say, you know, that that's where the overlap with TV comes into play, right? Because I just watched, we just watched Girls 5 Eva and we couldn't stop watching it. And it's hilarious. And I'm not saying they, they hit every joke, but it's, you know, it's, it doesn't cost me anything to watch it. Again, other than the subscription fee, what I'm saying is it's like it doesn't cost me time and uh, transportation and money at the box office. You know, it's an, it's an easier way in. And maybe, maybe that's the delineation. I don't know what this means in general for the future of filmmaking. I, don't, I hope to God there is some weird resurgence. And I do think my, my, my money is on the street, this streaming overlap will save the day in some weird convoluted way. Let's talk about um, your past 15 months of movie watching and movie non-going. What, um, what did you like? How did you watch? Were you watching all the time? What was your experience like? Oh, well, yeah, I watch, I think I told you this on the last, last time I was here. I, watch some, I try and watch at least one thing every day, whether it's a movie or an episode of something or a couple episodes or something. Um, I went Wait, to the Sam, drive. Yeah, go I, for it. I was going to ask about, can you talk about the circumstances in which you watch something? Like, are you a uh, phones in the other room? Do you have snacks? No. Like, will you take breaks? Like what's oh, yeah. your, you're like a, you, it's like you're going snacks, to church. breaks. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I mean, you know, I don't need it to be like, we got to turn off all the phones and we got to just focus 100% okay. of the time. Like, I think the movie should make me do that. So I, that, mm. I give that, I, the onus is on the movie for me to, and by the way, having the theater now, you know, is a luxury, obviously, but uh, it does, there, and this is why I miss movie theaters. Uh, half the time, I mean, you know, like when we walk, when you're on your couch and the TV's there and it's not as big and, you know, and the, the sound isn't as captivating, you're probably going to wander and your, your, your mind's going to go elsewhere. But when you're in a theater environment, the lights are like, gone right it is dark and the sound is enveloping you it makes you sit up a little bit more and it and you i do not i do not look at my phone at all i want to watch the thing i want to experience the thing that is the magic of going to theaters that's what i hope somehow this we don't lose that in the shuffle i do i just think it's easier to do it when it's on a tv and it's like over there in a wall and it's like you know Totally. Not no, encompassing I, your environment, you know? I, I asked because I'm heartened to learn that you also like struggle when there's like when there are eight million things else going on in the room and that you can't because I like I have that problem and I think a lot of people at home, that is one of the things. If you don't have the right environment, you don't lose yourself to whatever you're watching in the same way. Um, and, but and by the I way, thought that was a personal failing. <laughs> no, no, no. By the way, I think that's why TV took off in a lot of ways because it's, uh, you know, it's in shorter chunks, right? Right. So sure. it sort of w- works really well f- uh, for home viewing. Uh, and and I, it's hard, again, it's hard to, 
be all encompassing in a thing when you're just watching it on the TV and other things can interfere. For, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't feel bad, Amanda. Okay, you're thank totally you. right. I, I to feel distracted. It. Thank you. I, I will allow that. What were the things that had you not looking at your phone then? What during that time? I mean, okay, so we're talking about my favorites of 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were your favorites? Have you got? Have, did you got? I don't remember you got. And this is probably my pick for best director debut this decade so far. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a young decade. But um, have you guys talked about Miss Juneteenth? No, maybe very, maybe in passing over in the fall. So you guys have seen it, but didn't love it. I, we actually just talked about it with Wesley a couple of weeks ago. I think I, Amanda, if tell me if you disagree, but I think we both really, really liked Nicole Bahari, but yes. didn't necessarily click with exactly. the movie. I fucking loved it, man. I fucking so, loved it, and I think so. Why? Anne Jeffrey Peoples uh, is going to be a fantastic uh, filmmaker. I just think that the the sense of the storytelling was so crisp. The dialogue, there's very little exposition, yet she told you everything you needed to know about each, what was going on in every scene and what the dynamic was. She was always a step ahead in this really smart way. I thought the filmmaking was incredibly tender and and yet at the same time sophisticated she actually reminds me a lot of lumet like in a weird way because she she's like all about the performances but she does not forsake the visuals either it she has just like strikes to me she struck a very good balance that felt like i was watching a very mature filmmaker and then i googled it after and discovered she was she this was her first film so i was I was blown away. And I, and I thought the, Nicole's, I mean, her performance was excellent. Excellent. But I, I remember, it was just one of those movies where I just kept turning the Emmy and just saying, God damn, that was a good scene. And then, you know, after you do that a few times, you're just like, God damn, this is a good fucking movie. This is just a fucking excellent movie. And I just was, was drawn in. And I, by the way, I will say like, she, have, it's a kind of a movie that it follows a certain I don't know what it, what it is, coming of age or slice of life type of formula, but it felt not completely non-formulaic to me. It felt pretty fresh to me. I'd never quite seen it done in that way. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I was like over the moon about that movie. I think my favorite still might be, I'm thinking of ending things. I, I think you guys talked about that and maybe a little on the fence. I thought he was brought, by the way, I think, Charlie Kaufman's all three, all of his films, Synecdoche, and we're going to get to that in a second later on, but, um, and Anima Lisa, did you guys see that movie? Mm-hmm. Yes. This is the, the, this is like, my, this, this is my is, favorite, I, and this I is not this Amanda's coming. favorite. No, no, no. I was re looking through the list of you movies don't of 2020 love it, Amanda? in order to like guess, and I was just like, oh, I'm sure, Sam, but I, I love that I know that you loved I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and I love that you guys <laughs> have this moment. <laughs> and I love Jesse Buckley and I love Jesse Plemons. Jesse, it's Jesse Plemons who's in I'm Thinking of Anything's, right? Yeah, I love yeah, both Jesse's. And it just, it was one of the most irritating two hours of 2020 <laughs> for me. And that's really saying something, but that's okay. That's the power of cinema. And in some ways, <laughs> true. that it got opposite reactions from both of us at home in the year 2020 is like proof that movies are going to be okay. But go ahead, okay. speak about why you like it. Oh, I, I, I love, I'm thinking of ending things because, okay, so skill and craft is like bonkers, A plus, yeah. plus, 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 right? You can't room. deny, 
through the roof. Like, like, and I'm not just talking about the filmic. I'm talking about the production design, the costume design, the even the visual effects. The whole fucking thing is just just A plus plus crap. And then for me, I got swept up into it. It's one of those things. Yeah, I'm a fuck plot kind of guy. I feel like um, I feel like if 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 the movie is so hell bent on making sense and and putting these plot pieces together, and it's about plot me- mechanics, <coughs> tenant. Um, then, uh, yeah. then I, for me, it doesn't work. But um, but but if if a movie like I'm thinking of ending things, which you know, honestly, is, it remind me of the experience when I saw Mulholland Drive, which I'm curious your thoughts on that, Amanda, which is also to me a fucking masterpiece, um, where it just says, "Don't." I mean, it's weird. It takes the line from Tenet. Don't. I don't know what the exact line is, but don't don't think about it. Just feel it. That's. That to me is what that movie is all about. It's just, just, just give in to the experience. And, and then I, I found a lot of joy when I did that. And I love when movies do that. I love when movies take risks like that. So, um, okay. The vast of night. You must've liked that, Amanda, right? No, that was one of the scary horror (laughs) movies, but that's okay. That's okay. That's another one. I would not consider that horror. Creepy weird. It was a little closer to sci-fi. Yeah. Oh, that's right. No, but this is another one where I, Sean and Neiman and even Chris, I think very early on, were like, this is like the best debut of, and, you know, and what this person did with a small budget. And I love sci-fi so much. And I was like, it's so great that the, the boys have things that they love. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm and, gonna, and it I'm, continues to be great. We are going to overlap, Amanda. I promise. Uh, <laughs> on the rocks. Did you love I On loved, the Rocks? Of course, I, of course I did, but I'm a mark okay. for that. I like. I don't feel that I can speak objectively about the work of Sofia Coppola anymore, especially when Bill Murray is being charming in front of like Ellsworth Kelly and Cy Twombly paintings. I'm like, great, sign me up. I know. What What did, did you, you like, like about it, it Sam? What did you, I, I? I did. I I had a couple of quibbles with it, but in general, I think I I I saw it as like a nice bomb. Like it was it was something that if you were having a tough day, it's a movie that could lift your spirits. I I really really hated the ending. But that's a whole other. That's probably a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I just I found myself smiling the entire time, and I think if a movie can do that, uh, that's pretty powerful. And especially in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I turned it on and I just smiled from ear to ear the entire time. And I just also, again, the craft is pretty fucking excellent. The cinematography, the production design, the costume design, it's fucking great. And Bill Murray is pretty pretty damn charming. Um, the the assistant, which is another feature debut, right? Kitty Green, yes. Andrew Patterson, yes. Vassal Knight. No, the assistant. Well, I she, thought was she, great. She, she made she a documentary. She made a documentary called Casting Jean Benet. Do you remember that movie that was on Netflix? Yes, it was a sort of like a that's, hybrid. But we're talking, but it's still her feature film debut. Yeah, sure, but like you're saying document narrative feature film. Okay, I love that. Did you guys like that movie? Very, Very much. much. That's like a horror movie. That's like Jaws, right? That's a horror movie where you don't see the monster, um, but just done in this very, reminded me of those classic thrillers that I loved back in the 70s. Very character-based, but I mean, works on every level in terms of tension and suspense. Um, I I remember just being glued to the TV watching it. Um, And then I actually, I mean, this was, I guess, a TV movie. I don't fucking, again, this is where the lines really blur, but I love, did you guys see Bad Education? I loved, yes. This was one of my favorites of the year. This was one of those things where, Amanda, I, I hear, 
Well, this, this is Cindy Lumet I, to the bone. I, How are I, you not I loving know. bad education? I, Holy shit. I, no, I liked it. I think I, what was my, I don't even remember what my reservation was. I, I also, it. It, it was like extreme Long Island um, in a way that I wasn't even watching it as myself. I was watching it like as Sean and as like two of my best friends who Sean knows, Katie and Becky off like from this part of Long Island. And so I guess I was watching it anthropologically as opposed to and trying to understand the people closest to me. No, it was very good. But I, again, it did feel maybe like a little the the emphasis on TV and TV movie slightly. And which I'm not trying well, to ding it, it. it. It wasn't made for TV. It was just an indie film that happened to get sold to HBO. Right. Yeah, I I think um I think Corey Finley who made that movie is an unbelievable Brilliant. filmmaker. And yeah. I think if that if, it, if that movie were served up differently, if that movie got picked up by Neon or A24, we would have been talking about it in a different way. I think it's like major, major stuff. I actually regret not pushing harder for it like at, during end of year stuff because it just it was not eligible for all the awards that we end up I talking know. about through right. the end of the year. But that's a that that's a great and also to Amanda's point. I mean, I am a product of the Long Island public school system, and let me tell you, that movie fucking nails it, nails it. Like that is the lifestyle, that is the culture, that is the personalities of those people. It's incredible. To me, that's the class. So, so, so that's the movie I would fixate on when we talk about the future of filmmaking because that movie in the seventies would have been nominated for Oscars. That or you know, I mean, there's a lot of competition in the seventies again. I guess that's a future podcast, but that movie in another decade would have been, you know, Hugh Jackman would have been nominated for a bunch of shit. Like Corey would have been nominated. That's the type of movie now, like to, to your point, Amanda, to your knee jerk no, reaction to it I feels like TV. To, and that's I was trying to remember at. what my knee jerk reaction is. And honestly, I just feel like they gave the student journalist short shrift. And like, frankly, that should be the all the president's men for the female journal. And I was like, why is she just a minor character? This is an incredible thing that she uncovered. Anyway, I see. So yeah. it was a it POV was, no, issue. It was, it was very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- those are those are those are my quick quick faves of the. Those year. are great. Those are great shouts. And all none of those movies are are major, major, major releases. Obviously, there were not a ton of major releases. But did you find that? Like you lost your sense of where a movie was coming from, or were you hyper conscious about this is a Netflix movie, this is an HBO movie, this is something I paid nineteen ninety nine for, or is it all kind of the same to you? It's all kind of the same. I think you have your list of apps that you subscribe to, and you you go on. Although I, of course, do a little bit more. Right, I'm reading up on what's coming out, what looks good. I I'm a fan of Corey Finley from Thoroughbred, so of course I'm going to see his new movie, um, and then. The vast of night, weirdly, I mean, I woke up Saturday, one Saturday morning, you know, and this was like in the, I think in the like heart of the pandemic, right? It was in this like in June of last year or something like that. Yeah. And it was like the, you know, the whatever, what felt like the hundredth Saturday morning where I'm like, guess I'm just sitting on the couch today. And I, and I turned it on and I just saw the poster on Amazon Prime and I just off the poster hit play. I never read one thing about it, heard about it. I thought I'd watch whatever, you know, 10 minutes, give it a chance and then walk away. But I got completely sucked in. Um, the, but the rest of the movies, of course, Sophia Coppola, I mean, I'm going to see every movie she made. Aren't there, there are certain filmmakers, no matter what you're going to. Yeah. And so she's one of them. And I, yeah, it, I think, uh, Charlie Coffin's one of them for me. Miss Juneteenth. I mean, honestly, we just discovered that recently. And, um, and, 
I don't know. I don't even know how. I mean, it must have been, again, through one of these articles or whatever that I read read about. I, if your question is, is it because of the streaming platform? I don't think it's that for me. I don't, I mean, I guess the Vast of Night is maybe the one exception, but I don't think it's like, it's, I'm like some platform uh, loyalist or anything like that. I, I guess I'm just kind of curious for all people. This includes people who are kind of in the business or creative, but even just people who have services. There, there are now so many. There are so many different places to go to see movies. I was just thinking about this because it was announced last week, I believe, that the next Mark Wahlberg movie is going to be on par- straight to Paramount+. Plus. And that's like another service now that has brand new movies. And so we're looking at like, 15 services basically if you want to be able to keep up with everything and there probably will be consolidation down the line but at a certain point it's like if you missed it you missed it the thing about going the thing about theatrical or the thing about blockbuster is is that these films were available to anyone who wanted them you didn't need to pay for a subscription service and now things are becoming increasingly kind of tribal you know kind of segmentized and I wonder, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, but how does it strike you, the idea of like, if you're not a part of this club, you can't experience this piece of culture? I mean, it's a good question. And the answer is, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know. I mean, I look at like something like Apple Plus. Hey, look, I'll, I'll do this. I'll say it this way. If the, if the, if the sort of, um, it's not great, right, that they're all off on these walled off gardens. But if the um, if the only other solution to that is they don't get made, then I'm fine with it. I'm fine with walled gardens. If that somehow justifies uh, making these like really expensive, I mean, how much is the Scorsese movie that he's making for Apple? Oh, a two hundred million dollars minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he's so he's making a two hundred million dollar western, right? Basically, western yes. murder mystery. God bless. If that if the if subscription somehow magically justifies i don't pretend to understand the economics of that but if that somehow justifies Scorsese getting 200 million dollars to make that uh, i'm i'm all for it i mean i would also just say like the theaters and blockbuster you didn't have to have a subscription but you had to have money to pay yeah. for all of them yeah. and there and is- marketing right so it's i mean it's a, just a different level of accessibility and it was really interesting, Sam, in this Oscar season as I was like trying to get, you know, friends and family members and really anyone who doesn't listen to this podcast which, to care about the Oscars. Like the hurdle to watching a movie on Hulu for some people like seemed to be greater than driving to the theater and paying $30 for two tickets plus popcorn plus parking plus whatever. Are these people like, that have Hulu or? Yes. Yes. They have it. And they yeah, still and they're can. just like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be doing that. And also, some people, specifically my wonderful in-laws, were just like, we downloaded Hulu, and it was like they climbed Kilimanjaro. And I was like, you're <laughs> a, like responsible people. It's not that hard. And but they presented it as like it's so much harder now to see movies. And in in some ways, it really is because you do have to know this service and this service. And I guess you do have to be able to navigate the apps on your TV or whatever. But in other ways, it's so much easier and so much cheaper. Right. And it's, but th- that does seem to be the consensus that it just like is really hard to scale the like wall of all those walled gardens. I, and I don't know how you get past that. Well, you know, look at Sony. I mean, if a streaming, I, I assume if platforms don't take off, they'll do what Sony did, right? Didn't Sony just basically say, we're not doing a streaming platform. Mm-hmm. We're just selling it all to, is it Netflix? 
It's Netflix and then Disney after that or something. I don't remember. So maybe yeah. that will end up happening as consolidation uh, starts to happen. You know, I, again, it's worth movies getting made with good budgets and, um, it, and it somehow justifies the economics. Again, all for it. You know, I, uh, I, I talked to Adam McKay a couple weeks ago and I, it was interesting hearing him talk about working during COVID writing and then going into production what's it what's it been like for you what has your last 15 months of work been like well look i'm not i'm pretty antisocial. i i don't <laughs> i don't i don't love going I, out i find that so hard to believe you're such oh, a convivial well, man talk to talk talk to my wife i mean emmy i mean every time we go to an event i i'm the entire time complaining that i don't want to go and i'd like to go home this is even when I was nominated for the Emmy or the Golden Globe the entire time. I just, this is the last time I'm doing this. Is the last time I made, I make that threat every single time. And she, she always holds my hand and calms me down, but I think, I think it's wearing on her. I, I am not a very social person. So what I love to do, and I was in my writing phase anyway. Um, so what I love to do is like go to my computer and write every day. Right. And that's basically what I was doing when, uh, when the pandemic happened. So my life personally didn't change that much. And I got to say, uh, you know, it, you know, to a weird extent, this pandemic and the, all the Zooms, the fact that people are getting used to it now solves, a, I think, solved a lot of problems for me and a lot, a lot of problems for the industry, especially in Los Angeles. It's stupid to take a 45 minute car trip to, you know, some meeting that you're going to spend 30 minutes at and then another 45 minutes home. It's fucking dumb. And hopefully, that we don't go back to that completely. Obviously, there are some things you're going to need to be in person for. Like, I'm about to start a writer's room. I really don't love the idea of doing it over Zoom. Um, and so that that's the part where, because a writer's room, especially when you are interacting with people like that, some of the, some of the best moments happen um, when you're getting coffee, when you're grabbing, you know, when you're going outside for a second, or when you're talking about your day or whatever. And that's the kind of stuff that I don't think can happen over Zoom. So again, but in the past year, I wasn't in the writer's room. I wrote mostly, so that didn't change very much. I then shot a pilot in Toronto in January, and man, I got to say that, like, that was hard. That was hard. I'm also a huge germaphobe, so I was extremely paranoid. I'm wearing, like, the face shield and the mask, and I'm yelling at anyone who's, like, a nose dangler, you know, and, um, and I'm, you know, it's just the, the production is so stressful as it is to add like this layer of, and also you might die today if you <laughs> catch this virus, just did not, it was, it was, it was pretty miserable. I have to say, yeah. I don't know how people do it. I mean, PTA did it, right? He shot a whole movie uh, uh, under those circumstances. And I, I just did 16 days and uh, I was, I was, I was, I was very uh, on edge every single day. You know, the thing about me and filmmaking in general, I'm kind of this way, about everything, but specifically filmmaking, I love it. I love movies. I love TV shows. It is not worth anyone's safety or health. So, and I do a lot of crazy camera. I do, we move the camera a lot, probably a little too much. And if it I love ever it. puts Don't any, moving the camera, I love it. No, no, no. But but there are moments where I'm like, fuck, man, I'm worried. I'm not just worried about you know. There were moments I was worried about Rami, and there were moments. I was worried about the camera operator and I will just stop that shit and say, we will figure out another camera angle. Like I'm very, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very overly cautious. And so, 
you know, shitting in the pandemic was just not what I was built for. I was built for more the going to my office, going to my little, you know, office at home every day and writing. I have not talked to a single filmmaker who's told me, yeah, it's been great. It's been really fun <laughs> do, doing this. <laughs> no, no one seems to be enjoying it. It seems really difficult. Um, it's cool that you were able to get some stuff done though. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 um, and I gotta say too, with, with everybody, even, even though I'm very neurotic about it all, um, pe- people come together when they know it's serious. We didn't have a lot of like, I didn't get a lot of flack from anyone about mask wearing or anything like that. Everybody was sort of pulled together and said, let's, let's be smart and sensible about it. Having said that though, again, not, I'm not built for that. Not built for that. This episode is brought to you by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks, and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's caravan playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro, created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Sweat. (laughs) You mean armpit tears of weakness brought about by poor deodorant choices? Say goodbye to that salty river that floweth from your underarm with Old Spice Swagger Antiperspirant. Made for 24-7 sweat protection with daily use and an undeniable smell of cedarwood and lime. Mm. Giving you the confidence you need to quit your job, move to a remote island, and spend your days frolicking with dolphins. Old Spice Swagger Antiperspirant. Shop Old Spice now. Let's let's talk a little bit about the Oscars. So you came up with a another great game of sorts, but before we talk about the game, just what do you think of the telecast? Because it's been a it's been a a topic of much debate of late. Okay, well, I'm going to start by saying. I, and I don't want this to sound rude, but um, I don't know if I care as much 
Amanda I think do. that's not rude at all. Safe, that, is, safe like, that is healthy. I'm thrilled. <laughs> Sam, teach me how. You know? Well, and and we can talk about it because I don't know. Look, I started watching the Oscars. I when did you guys start watching? I, I remember my first year was the Driving Miss Daisy year. Was I think eighty nine? Was that yeah. yours, John? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Amanda? Uh, mine is a little bit later. Um, it's I definitely remember ninety five. Um, oh, it's and, that much later. And I think well, but ninety four was Forrest Gump, right? And I, yeah, I think Braveheart I is ninety five. Yeah, yeah. Great, yes, because I, I have some thoughts about the year of nineteen ninety five, which we'll get to. <laughs> uh, so, like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, I would say, which well, I was like nine, ten. You know? Yeah, and I I was about I think what was I I was I, I think I was a I was a little older I was twelve and I don't I don't remember loving it then either I found it all very kind of mild a mild curiosity and I've never it's never kind of been more impassioned or you know and sometimes I skip it all together I know that's blasphemy to say uh, blasphemous to say on this podcast but I guess I didn't so so. What I thought about the podcast, uh, uh, the Oscar, uh, the Oscars this year was, I thought the opening was fun, mm-hmm. with the Warner with the Regina and the credits. I was like, oh, I'm watching like a Soderbergh movie, and then, then they weirdly betrayed the cardinal rule of filmmaking, which is show don't tell by eliminating all the clips and telling every everybody's story. Uh, and I gotta be honest, I zoned out a lot during that, and then. You know, I that was, and then that was it, and then I didn't think about it since. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have this strong attachment. And part of the reason why, and we're going to get to this, is that when you look at what the Oscars have, you know, who have won the Oscars, do you value that? That's part of the reason why I wanted to do this exercise for. You. I mean, and by the way, I also did the exercise with the Golden Globes. And I know you like you guys love to shit on the Golden Globes, and I know like right now, justifiably, you should be shitting on the Golden Globes. Um, but I, you'd be curious to know that like I bet you you'd be more in line with who they picked than what the Oscars picked. Well, that's a very interesting point, and but, there's some truth to it. Although they do give themselves the opportunity to give to do two too. best pictures, totally, so totally that's that's fair. And I and I have those asterisks. But can I just add one other thing? Which is, and Co- I think Ryan Coogler said this recently, and I totally agree with this. It's this is not a competition. Like filmmaking is not a competition, not in this way anyway, right? Like not in this way where uh, I'm I'm making this movie this year, and I'm looking at the five other film, and I'm gonna like outperform, outright out. That, that, that's not the way it's built. And even the film festivals, which I kind of respect more, right? Because like you take the Cannes Film Festival for for example. There is a jury of specific number of people, and it changes every year. And um, and they watch all the movies that are in this festival, and um, and they uh, and then they uh, you know and then they pick wh- whoever is the winner in the different categories. The 
the Academy, they don't watch all the movies that get submitted to the They openly admit that. Do you ever watch it? Do you ever read those articles yeah, in the Hollywood make, Reporter? Yeah, they don't watch anything. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know how to log on so, to the website this year. Again, people just need tech support, but continue. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is they're never going to watch. There's like however many 600, what I, I don't watch all the movies. I watch out. them. Let, let me run the show. <laughs> I'm watching all of these fucking movies. <laughs> and for my, what? My point is why is the value, the val- like for me, I don't know how much I can value those kind of awards when the, the integrity and I'm not even like put, putting the Academy voters down because it's not their job to spend 600, you know, a thousand plus hours or 2000 plus hours to watch movies every year and then vote on them. This is like, it's just, a, it's like got low integrity in terms of that. And then to be honest, taste wise, and we'll get to our list in a second, I don't really align with them for the most part. So that's all, for all those caveats. I don't know if I have as strong of an emotional reaction. So when the Oscars didn't like excite me as much as they used to in the past or whatever, I was like, all right, whatever. You know, Chloe won. I'm happy for her. That was that. That was cool. Low integrity is a strong phrase that I'm going to hold on to that because um, I think you're right. I think Amanda and I both know that you're right. It's it's made up. It's a made up show by people who don't watch the movies. It's like... (laughs) Ridiculous. But, but it it's 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 essentially I don't know if it's the best we have, but it's it it has been the loudest, the noisiest, the most sure. visible version of acknowledging greatness in in film, right? That is that is the purpose of that award show and of of that that body. And so like we pledge some weird fucked up fealty to it over time. And I don't know if it's getting worse or getting better, but it's Sean, certainly getting it's, smaller. No, it's not getting worse or but it's the same. Sean, let me just say, here are the people that did never won a best director Oscar. Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, I wrote, wrote this all down, Sidney Lumet, David Lynch, Robert Altman, Fellini, Howard Hawks, Ridley Scott, Sergi Leone, Igmar Bergman, Orson Welles, Sophia Coppola, David fucking Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, PTA, Wes Anderson, Spike Lee. These are people who are masters. And the fact that they don't have Oscars, does that mean anything to you? Does that make you think less of them? Honestly, no. weirdly, there's a weird badge of honor I give to them that they haven't won, right. and yet they're like probably the best ever. That's why I don't even know historically if it means that much. I mean, Howard Hawks is one of the best earliest filmmakers in the industry, and he's never won it. I mean, that's that's fucking bananas if you think that matters so much, which it doesn't. So that you know. Amanda, why am I tortured by this? Why do I care about something that is actively bad frequently? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's like the the sentimental version of it, which is that Sean and I did grow up watching it. And to some extent, it's like how I learned about movies. And, you know, Sean likes to lecture me about how there should be history and clips in the films, in, in the show. And like the Oscars need to be an education system for the world at large. And I think that's like unrealistic, but it is true that the I learned about movies and movie stars and other things that I should find out from the Oscars because it's the most mainstream. And I didn't have parents who were like putting me down in front of Fellini films or whatever as a small child. So it's what we have. And I think we are grew up on it and are attached to it. And also, you know, we're just... 
what is life but like a series of, of, of things to strive for? And I think we are just like hoping that it'll be better one day and hoping that finally it'll make <laughs> sense. And like David Fincher will win his Oscar and like we can go back and, you know, change everything. We also just like, you need a framework to argue about stuff. And I think like you're totally right that as a commentary on how films are made and on, and on what is good, the Oscars are like completely useless. But as a way to argue about films and like get more people into the conversation. As Sean said, it's the best we have. So I think we treat it like the latter as opposed to like a referendum on, on the history of film. It's true. It's, you know, to that point, I definitely, and I think you guys probably did this too. You find ways to watch all the nominees before yeah. the Oscar telecom. That's like a, kind of bookmark you have at the end of every year to be like, let's, let's make sure I check all these films off. And, and, and I, that, but that's the way I, that's the way I approach the Oscars, right? Like any best of list, this is the, this is the people in the industry who somehow found their way into the Academy. This is their favorites, even though they haven't seen all the movies that came out that year. This is their favorites out of the word of mouth. Yeah. By the way, some people admit that they vote for things that they haven't even seen. And they voted for it to well, win. And it just, that's and because the they deserve it or whoever. The decision to just, do an anonymous Oscar ballot is like a whole different podcast about like a whole different type of true, person. True, but true. continue. And I don't but I don't pretend to know the answers. I'm not trying, I'm not sitting here trying to fix the Oscars. I think let the Oscars do what they do, which uh, you know, no, which is what they leave been. it to us, Sam. Let <laughs> us fix the Oscars. I'm telling you. <laughs> For $10 million, I will do it. I will fix the Oscars. Please call me. <laughs> well, first, let's let's see if you actually are in line with what the Oscars have given you, Sean. I think this is a moment for you to like look back and see if you do if you do well, actually. Let, let, so let's ex- let's explain your 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 pitch, your concept, your new game here. What what do you how, what do you want to do? How to, and how should how should we explain this? Well, I was listening to your podcast and you guys care so much about this and emotions were running it's our high. job. Uh, to- totally. No, I think it's more than your, just your job. You're letting yourself off to, no, you, you deeply, deeply care. So I thought to myself, should I, should I be caring more as, yeah, again, I, I described as more of a mild curiosity. So I just decided, let me just see how many times do I agree with the Oscars? And I just picked 1990 cause I was, I guess the first year I started watching them. And I only had a handful. And and then I threw that out to you, Sean and Amanda, since both of you do deeply care. I'm curious if you align with them more. And maybe that's where the disconnect is. So why don't we do our lists? So the, the, the prompt here is basically how many times since 1990, we that's the time we set so we could potentially do this again in the future. But since 1990, how many times has the best picture of the year been what you, Sam, or you, Amanda, or I think is the best movie of the year. So go ahead, Amanda. So I just want to say that I received sort of a telephone version of this prompt, but one of the, <laughs> it was favorite movie of the year, which is different well, than, that's what which I is said. different than best. I right. I would argue. So I, I made oh, that. That's interesting. Can I, can I ask what, what the difference is to you? Sure. I, because despite everything that you just said that I like totally agree with about like art being subjective and a, and a result of 
one person and the circumstances and that like you can't really rank them. Like I I do think that sometimes there are films that are just like objectively better made, have like better craft, are just like like this is a magical achievement. Um at like as art. And then there are the movies that I have like a response to because there's a particular aspect of its filmmaking that is very much in my style or it's about something, you know, like So it's like a movie that, you admire versus having emotional connection. Yeah. And really like the movies that have like stayed with me, what are in the like Amanda Pantheon versus like the the greatest movies of all time. And like, maybe I only make the distinction because I'm, you know, just used to the Amanda Pantheon being so different from like traditional film criticism, quote unquote, which we don't even have to go down that. But um, I, I just, I responded to this as like personal favorites. That are still good. I mean, I'm not doing like Bridget Jones Diary isn't on my list, even though I really love that movie, you know, but it's like it is what it is. So first of all, we have to we have to start a new segment called the Amantheon, which is about whatever is in the Amanda Pantheon. Um, Second of all, uh, why why don't you just why don't you just let tell us which which are your picks, Sam, because I think that will help. And it's a little different. The one I sent you, Sean, because one of them I decided against and then dropped. Oh, okay. So good to know. Uh, so close, since 1990, fire away. Since 1990, Silence of the Lambs, which I hope is both on both of your lists. Unforgiven, Schindler's List. That's three in a row, by the way. Mm-hmm. Then there's a huge gap when we pick up again 12 Years a Slave, Moonlight, Parasite. Amanda, do you want to read your list? Sure. So the other thing that happened was that I didn't know <laughs> that it was 1990 or later. So I just made a list that was total, but my my two are Parasite and Casablanca. <laughs> and that's it. Holy um, shit. Yeah. Wow. And, and I, so but I did been... actually, I know, and I think it, it'll be interesting, Sam. I don't want to spoil Sean's list, but um, I think you have the most. You're in you line the, the most. most, which is amazing. Wow. wow. But, but I, I did make a list of movies that are in each year that I would put over the winner just because otherwise it's a boring podcast. And they reveal a little bit about some, some of it's like timing. Some of it is just like in 1990 is unforgiven 92. I mean, I just, in 1992, I was a very different person than I am right now. And I just like, was not really responding to unforgiven in the same way. (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, eliminating years I thought I think was more fun than matching years and it was it was interesting to see how how quickly I could dismiss a best picture winner you know in certain years I don't know like 1998 for example Shakespeare in Love is was is not even in my top 10 it's not even in my top 20 of that year it's not a bad film but it's just not something that I it's not a movie that I really care about or clicked with so it was easy to eliminate that without even having to blink but I only have two and one is unforgiven wow. one is unforgiven and the other is the departed and that all that has wow. to say about 2006 is just that 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 was not necessarily historically a massively strong year so we can go through even like on your list sam i could identify the movies pretty quickly yeah. so that tell i tell like me what's more. better than silence tell me what's better than silence of the lambs in i i would take jfk over silence of the lambs 100 times out of 100 whoa whoa that's but wrong, that's sir. By but the way, that's I personal love taste that's just a personal yeah. peccadillo. I mean, but Sean, it's the wrong taste. <laughs> 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 but Sil- Silence, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs is a great example of 
what I was talking about. I think that's the best movie of that year. It's the best. And I really, really like it. And Me too. I also understand I in terms of like its significance in film history, it like its craft, the performances, like Silence of the Lambs, two thumbs up. A plus um, movie. I, I would say Thelma and Louise would be my favorite movie of that year. Um Again, I do like that movie. It's yeah. not, okay, better than Silent, but I do well, like. I do but, like. But you can understand why I would respond she, totally, to totally, movies totally. and not just like the experience of watching it, but kind of the influence that that movie has had on film history and how it's put together. So, you know, things like that. Wait a minute. What about Parasite? So you guys didn't have Parasite. I oh, wait, Parasite. you did. You did. But did. Sean, you did yeah. not. No, oh, no you went with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you agree with the Golden Globes. That's cool to know. So I, the HFBA. I wouldn't phrase it exactly that way, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't a part of anything that the HFPA did. Uh, but that, like, th- that's a very thin margin, right? It's the same thing with Silence of the Lambs and JFK. The, these are, honestly, those are all four of those movies are A plus movies. All four of those movies are five star movies. They're all fantastic. But I like JFK a little bit more. I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a little bit more. Uh, I'm on the record all the a lot on a lot of podcasts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You are. And you this, are. Ha- this happens frequently, right? This happens where there's like there is a movie that comes out, and everybody's like, "Man, this movie's really great." If only this other movie hadn't come out, it would have won everything. But unfortunately, Parasite came along and just annihilated, it and it didn't get a chance to win everything. And then you look back, and that's kind of the oddness of the Oscars is we we take a, this 12 month or in this past year's case, a 14 month period. And we say, let's just judge this period of time. You know, Bill Simmons, our boss, has for years has said, why don't we just do this every five years? Why don't we get a little bit more context? Amanda and I have suggested, why don't we just do one show for every five years worth of films and say, what was the best movie in this five-year period? You know, there's like ways to kind of distort but I don't think you need to do that. I don't think you need to do that. I remember, so let's, I'm going to pick a couple. I'm going to cherry pick a couple of years. So like, let's look at 1994, right? You had mm-hmm. Forrest Gump. You had Pulp Fiction, you had Quiz Show, you had Four Weddings and a Funeral, and you had Shawshank Redemption. Fucking good list, in in my opinion. I I liked all those movies. I don't know about you guys. I Mm -hmm. liked all those movies. Forrest Gump was obviously the biggest box office hit of the year. But I think we all knew that Pulp Fiction was the thing that was changing the game, that was going to be talked about forever. We all knew that. I think people in the academy back then, I mean, I, I was, what was I? I was in Jersey and I was like some 16 year old kid who knew that. They must have known that in the industry back then, but they chose to go with Forrest Gump. I don't know why that decision gets made. I don't know what the politics behind that all uh, is. Maybe it's just, you know, they, there's a, this logic of like, well, Tarantino was young at the time. This is his second movie. He'll be around. I don't know why that justifies. Well, we got to give it to Zemeckis because he's been around for longer and whatever. And this is like a big, big hit movie. I don't, I don't pretend to want to even get into that. But they knew. My point is, they knew that Pulp Fiction was going to be the bigger influence. Did they not? They knew. They didn't have to wait five years. They knew, and now everybody fucking talked about Pulp Fiction as the thing that changed the game. And they still didn't give it to it. But is that the purpose of the award? To say that this is the thing that will have the most influence? Because I find 1990 as a very interesting cutoff. Because 1990, of course, Dances with Wolves wins Best Picture. And that's the Goodfellas, Goodfellas, which is obviously completely absurd. And very similarly, Goodfellas, an immensely influential film that clearly was the best movie of the year for, for most people who have taste... And there was, frankly, never a chance that it was going to win. I mean, Good Dances with Wolves was dominant that year. 
And some of it has been, they've attempted to address like in the last five years. Then there's been this suspicion that because it's been a very white academy and a very old academy and a very male academy, that a certain kind of film would only be recognized. Whether or not that meaningfully changes the kinds of movies that win, I, 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 we still don't know. I mean, obviously, like the, this past year, it's a little bit hard to judge. And I think there's a sense that maybe Moonlight and Parasite in particular indicate a new direction. And then so then when you look back at history, some of these choices are going to seem fucking wild. Like, they're, like Dances with Wolves gets crazier by the day. You know, King's Speech gets crazier by the day. There's a handful of these where it's just like, I can't believe that people like humans had brains and made these choices. Um, but some years it's not quite so clear. Like some years it does feel like, well, they, they got it close to right. You know, they were, they were near the line. You know, if you, if you, cho- if you chose um, Forrest Gump that year, I, I probably would have chosen the other four films that were nominated over Forrest Gump, but I still really like Forrest Gump. I right. did a whole rewatchables about Forrest Gump. I'm a fan of that movie, <laughs> but I would rather watch quiz show and I would ra- rather watch Shawshank. And I would rather watch Pulp, obviously, which is just the greatest. But this is, but you're 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 going a little too easy on the academy because this is. Look, do you know the movie How Green Was My Valley? Of course, yeah. Yeah, John Ford. Yeah, that beats us in Kane, right? Yeah, and I have to believe. I like How Green Was My Valley. Uh, you know, whatever. It's a beautiful it, film about Ireland. How dare you? That's where my people are from. Oh my god. Okay, <laughs> it's it's fine, but. You cannot watch this in Kane. Amanda, I don't know if you're going to start rolling your eyes because this is no, probably a very film school, film school nerd. I, uh, I, unlike the rest of America, of- have seen Citizen Kane and I rewatched <laughs> it before I saw Mank, a film I liked, even though I've been cut out of that discourse on this podcast. So please continue. I'm just saying you watch this in Kane and it is revolutionary in every level of filmmaking. They knew that. And they went with how green was my valley. So this is not, the 90s is not like some asterisk or anything like that. And it's not about like just old white men making the decisions because they could have, I mean, Orson Welles, I mean, he wasn't old, but he was definitely a white guy. So I don't, I, but that's, I'm, I'm, I'm cherry picking here. I mean, Hitchcock never won for like masterpiece after masterpiece. So what, what is it about them going the safe route? Well, I, I, that, that's the thing I don't get. I think you're giving we them a little know. too. Uh, well, that's the thing. I think you're giving them a little too much credit. I don't think they always you don't know. Think they know. To to use for go back to Forrest Gump. Have you seen the the film The Big Sick? It was the uh, yeah. the romantic like comedy. With, yeah, 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 I do too. Yeah. Remember, Ray Romano gives a great performance in that film, and at one point he's complaining about the internet, and you, and his complaint is, "You go on the internet, they hate Forrest Gump. I hate the internet." And like, I, that's number one, just like very funny, like internet criticism, but you know, not everyone feels the way that we do about Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction. I mean, all people who are total movie, movie nerds do, um, but not even everyone within the Academy feels the same way. And it's an imperfect body, um, as we have learned like every single year. And it's a little bit the best we have, but I don't. I think maybe they're learning a bit more, but like also maybe, maybe not. And I just, I don't, the other thing is that they're always trying to bridge that gap between what's really popular and what is like really significant. Um, and without hindsight, it, well, they don't get there. I agree. And honestly, it's going to be interesting when we do the next pod about this, 
Because the 70s, even though I don't agree with a lot of the winners, the nominees are insane, insane. And I, I, and I, that's the decade, I think I, I did the math on this. I mean, even though you guys came in with such low numbers, I'm cu- curious where you disagree with them because you've included everything since Casablanca, Amanda. So that I, must that mean you never that agreed. Was like being in, in cute. No, there are other, I mean, it's like, <laughs> okay. even as I'm sitting here, I'm like, there are other movies I love that are definitely like but, my favorite, you know, I also yeah, haven't seen all the movies. Right. And I just think that like they, some, and, and maybe this is what it is, is that Godfather, for example, and Godfather too were the biggest hits the year it came out. And by the, but you know, and then by the nineties, it was the CGI started to grow and it was those movies. It was now like, I guess star Wars started the trend, but now you were never going to see a Godfather be the biggest hit at the box office. And so that's, that, that's where this sort of disconnect happens. And by the way, maybe that's why the ratings started to go down. I mean, obviously Titanic was the exception. But that used to be the rule, right? It used to have gone with the way all those movies that were like the big studio launch that was also like the fan favorite was also the the thing that marched towards best picture. That just doesn't happen anymore. I think, I think you identified something that is kind of at the crux of the Academy's long-term problem here, which is that the Academy is attempting to modernize and grow and change its base and reimagine what kinds of films it can recognize. But the Academy Awards was designed for Hollywood. It was designed for Studio Hollywood. It was built by Studio Hollywood. And so when you have films like My Fair Lady or Gone with the Wind or the God, even The Godfather, which is you know made by somebody from the new Hollywood and was thought to be a little bit transgressive, but still was this kind of like epic, beautiful tale of a family and uh, across many, many years those kinds of movies made sense in the rubric of Best Picture. If you look at Best Picture in the last five years, I mean, these films, with the exception of Green Book, which looks a lot like Driving Miss Daisy, these films have virtually nothing to do with the kinds of movies that won Best Picture in the past. Moonlight, The Shape of Water, Parasite, and now Nomadland, these movies don't look like historical Best Picture winners. So there is something kind of changing here. And I think it's they're attempting to be more international. You know, they're attempting to recognize younger filmmakers, filmmakers of color, it's just not going to seem the same to people. So older people who have this vision of what the Oscars should be, a little bit of what you're describing, Sam, this sort of like this populist entertainment that also features great artistry, things are getting a little bit smaller. And that I, I, I don't, it's not bad. There's nothing but bad about how do you it. It's explain just different. Green, but how do you explain Green Book then? That was only a couple I, years ago. And wasn't that in the, I'm trying to remember, who, who was up, what was up against? You had The Favorite, you had Roma, which was a, uh, a crowning achievement and international, I mean. I, I, a, a Star is Born. A, a Star is Born. How do, you, how do you explain, how do you explain that? I would describe that as a front lash. That was a front lash to the sense that the Academy was changing radically and it was a year in which Roma and Netflix represented one thing. Black Panther, which was also nominated that year, represented something else. And this was an attempt to kind of defy that, that there was still, there's still a ton of older members of the Academy and that a lot of people went in for a film that seemed very familiar and that that's probably the last time we'll ever see that. I know I could be wrong. I mean, who the hell I don't know, man. Look at the year before. You just said The Shape of Water, but I mean, look what else came out that year. Lady Bird and Get Out. I mean, incredible feature debuts that just home runs on every level. Uh, exploring different points of views 
from uh, from a black filmmaker and a, and a female filmmaker. How do you explain that? Like, to me, I don't know if the Oscars are changing as much as you think they are. I think Oscars are going to Oscar. I really the shape, do. The, the Shape of Water is a film made by a Mexican man in That's which true. a woman falls in love with a fish creature set during you know, the cold, but like that is a weird ass movie, Sam. It feels conventional because Guillermo del Toro is, is very informed by classic, classic. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's filmed and told in a very classic Hollywood way. And, 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 and maybe that's it, right? Inventive, you know, narratives like Pulp Fiction are just, are going to get the screenplays. That's what the screenplay Oscar is for. Right. Um, uh, But the best picture has to be, something that's going to harken back to the good old days of, of Hollywood. Uh, that's either going to pull heartstrings or have an important message or, or, or some sort of morality like that. And by the way, and again, I look at like Parasites Win, which was, you know, for all, all things considered, a huge exception to the rule of the Oscars, right? I just don't know if that trend is going to stick. I hope it does. I mean, actually, I don't hope it does because I don't, I don't hope for anything. I mean, the Academy can, should do whatever... Whatever it is they, they want to do. I just, personally, I don't know if our, I know you, you and Amanda do keep emphasizing that something's different about the Academy. And I'm trying to show you something's very the same, much the same about the Academy. And I don't know if that's changed. I, I really don't know if it's that different 20 years ago than it is now. I mean, I will say this. The next time there's a Titanic, and I don't know when that's going to be. I guess it's going to be like when a superhero movie proves itself to the academy in some way that it's a i, I do think that's when it will be no i do think that's when it will, personally i do think that's when when they decide it's time to give a movie like that the recognition but i don't know see to me is that is titanic wasn't on your list i'll tell you what was on my list for 1997 deconstructing harry the game boogie nights boogie nights fucking boogie nights man uh jackie brown and honestly i'd even throw in kundun in the conversation i don't I think Jackie Brown was nominated, but I don't think the others were. Uh, and then I look at like I look at like a year like 1999, which I know you guys or it wasn't you, but did, did you guys do a podcast about the great movies of 1999? We did a series, yeah, we did a limited series on it. I, I think most of the movie. Look, this is the nominees for 1999: American Beauty, One, Green Mile, Cider House Rules, Sixth Sense, and The Insider. And if you think about the movies that came out that year, The Matrix, Fight Club, Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, there was so many classics. Notting Hill. Notting Hill. (laughs) No, yes, you're right. Notting Hill. And they weren't even recognized. That 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 to me is the norm, I would I would say. So this is maybe too nuanced, but I'm gonna throw it out there. I think maybe the academy is changing, but Everyone on this podcast's relationship to the declared best is not changing. And I would just say that possibly both constitutionally and generationally, because this is like when I'm like closest to Gen X, is when I'm just like, whatever someone says is the best is not the best. And let me tell you five more things that are the best. And I always feel a little weird, like the worst day of the year for me is always like movie wise is when the golden globe nominations come out and they nominated things I like. And I'm just like, well, damn it. Because if the <laughs> HFPA thinks this is good and I do too, then what does that say about me? I don't want to be with these people. So I, I don't know that the fact that we aren't suddenly like, yay, the Academy got it right. Says anything about the Academy. I think it says more honestly about our relationship 
to the Oscars and to like how we argue about things and whether, I mean, and, and maybe it just means we're just a bunch of like whiners and contrarians and Sam, I'll only speak for myself and Sean there. Cause you actually are great at celebrating things, but I don't think I'm ever going to be like, well, they got it totally right. With the exception, I would say of Parasite and, and Moonlight. Moonlight to me is a year that they but got it right. Two movies that were not on your list. Weird. Parasite Moonlight. was on my list for the record. Oh, right, my right, list right, was right, Parasite right. Keep, and Casablanca. <laughs> Moonlight, Moonlight like should be on my list. And I think like Moonlight is the classic example of also because they got it right. I think it has been like, and, and also the way in which they, it was announced. Like it's, it's, it's basically done a disservice to how great Moonlight is because we remember it as like historical significance as opposed to just like an amazing film. I also just like, I have watched Arrival, which also came out that year, like so many times since then. It's like, a, is that your pick? I, is yeah, Arrival favorite? is my, fa- and that's like a real, just personal, emotional and something that over Same time I, I have just like been really walloped by, but, um, Moonlight and Parasite, I think, are probably the only two times where I'm going to be like, oh, they got it. And I don't, even if they completely change the Oscars, even if, like, you know, they reanimate 1992 and give the Oscar to a few good men, I'm still <laughs> not going to be like, wow, they fixed but, the Oscars. I agree with them. That's just not my nature. But but what I'm, well, I guess here's what I'm trying to say is, like, I, I just don't know if you're giving them as much. I, I think you need to give them more credit. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. King's Speech beats Social Network. Nightmare. So, Social Network won the Golden Globe, by the way, and a bunch of other awards. Um, rightfully so. It was the best movie of the year. And everybody, everybody fucking knew it. Now, King's Speech, I actually like, really like King's Speech. I think Tom Hooper is a great director. And um, I think the performance is really good. Uh, uh, but it was did clear. Did you see Cats? I, I did not. I did okay. not see Cats. Did you, did you really, did you just strongly, did you really not like King's Speech at all? No, it, it's, it's, it's fine. I, I, I think it's, it's all about context, right? It's like Amanda and I have been yelling at each other for five years about how the social network didn't win Best Picture because of the King's Speech. So now it is a villain of this show and, and, and of our friendship. But it, it's, it's not a bad film. It's just preposterous that that kind of a movie emerged in that time. I was my, struck by it. Yeah, I, me too. But my point is they knew and I don't know. I mean, they must have known. I was I was in L.A. I don't know if you guys were in L.A. back then. I was in L.A. When Social Network came out, it was you felt it. You felt it in the air. This was a groundbreaking fucking movie that was going to change. Like, and by the way, hugely successful at the box office. It I mean, it is a talky drama, mostly to people talking in rooms. No set pieces, no fancy footwork. It's just pure fucking great writing, great directing, great performances. Um, and it was exciting and thrilling. And it felt like you were in an action movie. I mean, it just was, it had a, uh, I, whatever. I can go all day about, uh, go all day about uh, social network. But why the, the fact, when it didn't win, when it lost to the King's speech, were you guys surprised? Well, I think there's a complication there, which is that we closely follow this stuff. So if you have a consciousness about, say, Harvey Weinstein at the time's ability to manipulate the Academy to position a movie within an award season, then you know that he could be successful in times when it seemed illogical. And that's an under-discussed aspect of what we're talking through here. You know, it's like, this is not just um, an objective body that watches movies and doesn't talk to anybody. 
it isn't it isn't even like a festival jury where it's a small group of people who have their own specific taste, but they have to kind of negotiate together to arrive at a conclusion. There is an entire ecosystem of commerce that happens around the awards. And so campaigning always matters and is always reflected in the winners. But that's the thing that was rather befuddling about it because it was winning. It was winning all the campaigns leading up to the Oscars. So it's, it was, it, but I wasn't, but my answer to my own question was, I was not surprised. I was not surprised because that is what they do. They don't, they know that this is the more forward thinking film and they weirdly intentionally don't go for that. I don't know what the answer, I don't, again, I don't pretend to know, but that, that's sort of, again, my, that's just to bring it back to circle, like full circle here. That's sort of why my, my feelings towards the Oscars are sort of, you know, neither here nor there. You know what I mean? They keep doing that. So why would I give them any, you know, it, why would I, would, I, I like, I have my eyes wide open with them because that is my, that is my expected reaction to most of their wins. And Parasite is like the shock. I, I think it's just a really rational viewpoint. Like I still, I don't, we can, we can argue <laughs> forever rational. about, no, no, no. I think it's good. We can argue forever about like what the Academy, which is like a, you know, amalgam yeah. of thousands of people like knows or doesn't know and what that like a voting body can do it intentionally or not. Um, but you're right. Like to invest in it at the level that we do is, um, just, you know, it's not one of the better choices I've made in my life, but here I am. <laughs> and the only argument that I would make um, for investing in it going forward, which it seems like absolutely no one but me and Sean is going to do, is the role that it plays in advocating and just not even advocating for movies, but making people aware of movies. And I couldn't get all of my friends to actually watch Nomadland on Hulu but they at least knew what Nomadland was this year because it won Best Picture. And I don't know how many other movies they they knew about. And to bring it back to the beginning of our conversation and like navigating all the eight streaming services and what happens to movies if they're not in theaters and the marketing budgets are different and yada, yada, et cetera, we need some way to raise awareness and also maybe some way to like still be arguing about, like, do you still want to be having a conversation about what's like movies that are good and movies that are bad. I mean, maybe not movies that are bad, but I know you don't believe in ranking them, but where no, I else do. Is it I happen- rank them. I rank them where personally else is it, every year. Where else is it happening on like any level other than I, among I think, the three of us? Can Film Festival. I mean, by the way, that's what I look, I, that's when I first remember hearing about Pulp Fiction when it, because it won uh, that's how I learned about Barton Fink. That's how I learned about Wild at Heart, Se- Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Again, I'm a nerdy film, you know, I'm a, a film nerd, so maybe the the rest of the population don't, don't know about the Cannes Film Festival and don't want to know about the Cannes Film Festival, and so the Oscars is their substitute. But weirdly, I, I do, I you know, I don't even know if that completely works. I mean, does it? I mean, you just told me nobody even knows how to access Nomadland. Won everything. It's it's all about sequences. I mean, Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood debuted at Cannes, and that kicked off their campaigns, so to speak. And so, like, it is it is we've created this series of events that happen over a period of time that allow for increased exposure. That's what Amanda's talking about, right? How do you get exposure for artists, exposure for films, 
And is the Oscars the culmination of that? Now, I think what could be happening is maybe the Oscars is no longer the culmination. And it is more like TV or more like music where it is more segmentized. And if you're a film junkie, I mean, I'm really looking forward to hearing the final announcement of the films that are premiering at Cannes because it's probably going to be absolutely loaded because 10 or 15 films were held back from last year. So you might have, we might have 30 movies from people who are broadly considered world cinema masters. That's really, really exciting for us. And that might be more of our Oscars in the future. So I, you might be onto something. I don't know. Well, I will say this too about Can. It's almost like, yeah, there's a winner, but you, I, I don't know about you, Sean, but I definitely try and watch a lot of the, just the films that are in this, in the festival that have course, been selected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm assuming there's some interest, something interesting about each one if they're in in the film festival. I I do. I'm not again. I'm not here to advocate one way or the other for the Oscars. I do. I do want to say though that I do think that there's. It is sociologically speaking, it is interesting to go back and see how it defines a certain context of that era. What what must have the Academy thought back then to have picked, you know. Dance, dancing, uh, dances with wolves over Goodfellas, and you know, and and make those kind of choices. I so I in a weird way, even though I obviously love Goodfellas more, I kind of like that they like that they did that. I don't know. It makes for more interesting conversation. We'd be bored right now if they always picked our choices every year. You know what I mean? You're right. Exactly. You're right. Can I point out one other thing? 2007. I'm so curious because this is like. Three masterpieces. The best year right? of movies, yeah. Yeah. Michael Clayton, No, no Country for Old Men, and uh, There Will Be Blood. Is it There Will Be Blood? Is Michael that the one? For me. No, it's not, there Will Be not, Blood for me. There Will it, Be Blood is the, is the best film of the but, 21st century. But that's great, guys. That's why yeah. we're all here together, because you've got wait, There wait, Will Be Blood. Amanda. Oh, are you Michael, Michael Clayton? I love Michael Clayton. Uh, I guess that, I, that does make sense. That's great. <laughs> Sam, we agreed. But, I agree. We agree. But I think it's like, that's a great year for the Oscars. I don't know if it did ratings wise or whatever, but man, that was a good year. That's like 94. And so every once in a while, like this is why I have that mild curiosity because every once in a while it bubbles up to the surface like this and it's, and it's pretty fascinating. And then you have like 10 years in between where it's not. I pray we get that kind of a year in 2021. I, I I doubt it, but I, I pray that we do. You never know. What were your early picks? Uh, well, I mean, there's a handful of obvious stuff that's going to get nominated. So it's PTA a question of like, P- hope- I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully PTA, but you actually can never kind of tell with PTA. It does feel like this is this this will be the topic of between 40 and 60 episodes of the show in the next year. But um, it does feel like after Phantom Thread, he kind of like burst through in a way that the Academy like has officially recognized him as getting ready to be rewarded. You know, like they do make some people wait a long time. Like you said, Quentin has not won Best Director. A bunch of people didn't win Best Director, but they're they've gotten better at recognizing people in the second half of their lives, especially if they make films that more closely seem to align with their taste. It seems like Soggy Bottom. It sounds like is a coming of age movie, so that would be nice. But then there's also a lot of more traditional stuff. Spielberg doing West Side Story, In the Heights, um, maybe Dune. There's like a whole bunch of dramas, you know, the French Dispatch. There's a lot coming this year that feels like it fits in neatly. Sam, do you want to join the House of Gucci Hive? I love, I can't wait. Okay. I'm a huge- Thank you. Welcome. Sean, for some reason, doesn't want to be a part of it, but it's you, me, Chris Ryan, and film Twitter are in are the you House not, of Gucci Hive. Are you not a Ridley Scott fan, Sean? Huge, huge fan, although I think 
there's there are two schools of Ridley Scott. There is epic Ridley Scott, and there is dramatic Ridley Scott. And dramatic Ridley Scott has its flaws. Uh, we've all seen all the money in the world, for example, flawed film. Uh, this feels closer to all the money in the world than it does to say Blade Runner or Alien or Prometheus. So we shall see. We shall see. Sam, um, thanks for doing this. It's so good to see you. This is what, so much you, fun. Do you have anything to, to pitch or plug or share? Or? No, I just love hanging out with you guys. So please just invite me back. We will, we of will. course. We'll do we'll do 1960 to 1990, and um, maybe we'll <laughs> bitch and moan about the Oscars some more because that's what we always do. Sam, <laughs> yeah. Sam Esmail, thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to the great Sam Esmail. Thanks to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for making this show possible. Amanda, thank you. Later this week, I'll be joined by Rob Harvilla. We're going to talk about a little movie called The Mitchells versus The Machines. Just an absolutely delightful animated film. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.